0: All right, welcome to you, Idiots. I'm Matt Taibbi. I'm Katie
1: Halper. And this is what, day 9,000 of quarantine? Time flies when you're having fun. So <laughs> When goodness. you're having
0: fun. How are you how are you handling this, Katie? Is this, uh, is this wearing on you yet?
1: Yeah, probably much more slowly than it's wearing on other people because I'm uh, not in New York City, which is where I live. So it feels like I'm not totally doing my normal routine anyway. It's nice to have some pets around. Pets are good. That's a good. Yeah, very You haven't eaten leader. them yet, right? Not yet. <laughs> I don't. I don't eat red meat. So dogs are red meat, right? Technically.
0: Yes, they are. Or is it? Is it? I mean, is a dog a white meat also? Like a like pork? I like don't know. pork?
1: I don't like that racialist. Uh, uh, <laughs> that racialist <laughs> attack on on pigs. It's porcophobic and racist. And I don't eat pigs, by the way. The first animal I stopped eating were pigs because they're so smart and cute. S-
0: smart for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'm getting a little answer. The, the, the shining factor is starting to kick in a little bit. Right. In this house, you know, family alone with writer cut off from rest of the world is is not a great formula for right. uh, domestic bliss. So I'm in, I'm in the uh, all work and no play makes mad a dull boy phase. of.
1: Uh, How's the drumming going, though? How's your bo- boy band
0: yeah i don't know i'm uh i'm <laughs>
1: <laughs> what's that i can't see it what is that
0: all work, this- it, all work and no play makes mad a dull boy you yeah. wrote that
1: out as like a mantra to, like instead of having a vision board you have that
0: you got to see the movie the shining if you haven't so this, is, this is what happens when you spend too much time by yourself so yeah I it's gotten a little the, the drumming i'm still doing it yeah but uh yeah, it's getting it's getting a little tense in here. I don't have the crazy beard yet. Apparently, that's unhygienic. You're not supposed to do that. So, But lots to talk about in the world, uh, apart from our own personal foibles. So uh, should we just get to it, I guess? What do we have for uh, the four food groups this week?
1: I believe it starts with you and Democrats suck.
0: It does start with me. It starts with Democrats suck. And this is a pretty easy one this week. Uh, I think we got to talk about the <laughs> the unanimous... Uh, 96 to nothing Senate vote in favor of the $2 trillion rescue, which is really more like a $6 trillion rescue once you figure in the Fed and all the leverage that's going to go into it. This massive sort of bailout of the bailout. uh, You know, even last time with the 2008 rescue, which was, you know, as I pointed out in a piece I wrote recently, that was the last time we had one of these, we need a gazillion dollars in 10 minutes sort of bills. You know, there was at least some token opposition in the House from Democrats Like, you know, wait a minute, what exactly is in this bill? You know, how are we going to spend this stuff? Uh, I think 63 Democrats voted against it in the House, the the original TARP bill. And uh, this time around, apart from a few symbolic gestures towards trying to change the ratio of where the money went it there was just nothing you know uh, it, it passed unanimously in the senate and then it went through in a voice vote in the house and i, I people are going to look back at this moment in time and i think the ge- democrats are probably going to be judged a little bit harshly for for that move because there's a lot in this in that bailout bill that's that's a pretty radical change in the the american economy and uh It's, it's going to look bad going looking back and there's going to be more going forward. I mean, we're already seeing people like Nancy Pelosi chime in in favor of some pretty, pretty dicey bailout rescue provisions. Yesterday, she came out in favor of scaling back a rule that would prevent, uh, firms that are taken over by private equity companies from, uh, from sharing in the bailout money. And the reason that's messed up is because what's gonna end up happening is that say you have have a chain of stores that's been taken over by a bunch of Wall Street vampires or like a a toy company like Toys R Us or whatever it is. They're owned by a private equity company. Part of those deals requires that they send all these special dividends and fees and uh, consulting fees and borrow tons of money uh, to pay their new investors. So now, with the economic downturn, a lot of these companies aren't going to have enough money to pay their Wall Street masters unless they get access to bailout money. So Mm -hmm. this bailout money, a lot of it could end up going to paying the exorbitant, Consulting fees that people like Mitt Romney's Bain Capital charge all these these uh, conquered companies, which is going to be totally messed up. And the Democrats right. are just they're just sort of reflexively on the wrong side of this stuff. Which
1: they, why is that? You know,
0: I don't know. I mean, they were la- They were mostly were last time. And I, sh- I should point out that. We we have a rule at Rolling Stone, an un- unwritten rule against using the term "something is like something on crack" or "something right. on acid." Uh, and this bailout is like the 2008 bailout on crack. It, I mean, I'm going to break that rule. It, yeah, and
1: the and window on that language has shifted.
0: It it's, it is it has moved. Yeah. Oh my god, I just used that, didn't I?
1: No, you didn't. I said it. I was trying to trick you. So you um, acknowledged it, which may be against your rules. Too,
0: yeah, but. I think that's against the rule. But but yeah, why why do they support it? Because Because at heart, they're not against this. I mean, when you get underneath the bailouts, ultimately what the bailouts were about last time was this concept. It's trickle-down economics, basically. Like, we're going to fix this emergency by throwing a ton of money at the finance sector and hoping that it kind of all works itself out. We're going to permanently support the financial markets, and that's going to eventually result in a lot of Main Street uh, economic activity. This time around, there's some stuff in there for Main Street, but the main, the bulk of this bill, once again, is a financial bill, and they're that's that, that's just who they are. So, it's messed up. They're 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 going to be criticized for it later. I think.
1: So it's mainly Wall Street, not mainly Main Street.
0: Well, it's it's at least half Wall Street, but the problem is we don't know exactly. We don't know how the money is, is going to get to these small businesses. Like, there's a you, know, you have to go to apply for a, a, a small business association loan. We'll talk about this later. Okay, yeah. Uh, more about this. But, the, you know, there's like last time around in Katrina, when the, the small business association gave out loans, it took five months per loan to get help. So the bulk of this money going through the SBA doesn't bode well for people getting ordinary people getting. Not that
1: there's any urgency to this or anything. Right.
0: Yeah, exactly. So that was messed up, I thought. Yeah. uh, And and there's there's going to be more stuff like that going forward with with the Democrats in the ballot, unfortunately. Yeah. What do we have have for Republicans?
1: Well, for Republicans, we have a uh, a really interesting revelation. If you are um, the governor of Georgia. Uh, Governor Kemp, Republican, just discovered. He just learned something. Should we go to the videotape to show let's what he, Let's go to the videotape. Let's go to the videotape to see what he just learned. Um,
2: you know, I think it's the reason I'm taking this action. It's like I've continued to tell people I'm following the data, I'm following the advice of Dr. Toomey. Uh, her and I both mentioned in our remarks, um, you know, finding out that this virus is now transmitting before people see signs. So, the what we've been telling people from directives from the CDC for weeks now that if you start feeling bad, stay home. Uh, Those individuals could have been infecting people before they ever felt bad. Well, we didn't know that until the last 24 hours. And as Dr. Toomey uh, told me, she goes, this is a game changer.
1: So, okay, this is, um, so uh, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, uh, after resisting a statewide stay at home order for days, finally succumbed to the pressure and issued one on Wednesday. Part of the reason he said was that he just learned some new information, finding out this virus is now transmitting before people see signs.
0: That's fantastic. That's a real United States of derp kind of moment, isn't it? Yeah,
1: I like this. You know why? Because it makes me feel a little bit better because there have been a lot of recent moments where I'm like, how much worse are Republicans and Democrats? You know, and this is like a nice this is a nice example of how really there are there are significant differences. I mean, they're not as big as they should be, but I don't think we'd see a Democrat making this comment.
0: Yeah, no, not not this kind of comment. No. I
1: mean, we've we talked about this on another episode and there's another primary coming up and the Dems do have blood on their hands when it comes to not postponing the primary. And but uh this is a, you know, this is a real like I just found out 24 hours ago my bad. But right. what I like about it is it's not even my bad. It's like, "Oh, I just found this out and now that I found this out, I'm going to I'm going to do the right thing."
0: Right. Yes. Yeah. Do you think
1: he's lying or um like, is he disingenuous or, or, or uh, dumb, dumb or disingenuous?
0: I'm going to go with dumb on this one. I mean, yeah. but that's just the default answer whenever you're talking about Americans in general. So, mm. yeah. So your, your, your primary difference is the, de- the Democrats would cynically just dis- decide um, t- to pretend that they only just found out. Right. Like, I mean, that, that would be when the Democrats do something bad, it's, it's, us- it's, it's usually a transparently cynical decision. Right uh eh, eh, whereas with the Republicans there's there's very often a gross ignorance el- element to right. what they're doing uh, or superstition I'm interested to talk to that doctor who said it was a game changer like yeah uh, I wonder what else was a game changer for her that that, there are, that the human body has multiple different blood types or right. nervous signals travel by electricity or you know the, the heartbeats I mean
1: like what are, what, what are other
0: basic things that she just she just found out
1: maybe like the um the intestines is what 25 feet that i bet you if we told that to to governor camp he would his head you know what's that famous scanners thing his head would explode.
0: scanners yeah we we can we should take every opportunity to have to insert a scanners uh, graphic in here dan if we can put that in later
1: yeah let's just have that playing exploding a loop
0: yeah that was good that's excellent uh and that's sort of a classic uh classic republican moment OK, so for isn't that weird, I guess. Well, by the
1: way, one thing I just want to add, I'd be remiss if I didn't add it. I, I feel I think that may be Julian Assange uh, signing in the background.
0: Oh, yeah, so that, that, that Julian, pretty, yeah. I was going to point out that that ASL translator was uh, like, I want that person in my house at all times. That, yeah, it's, that it was like it's, mesmerizing, actually.
1: Well, doesn't he look like he has the post um, post eviction, post-MSC eviction uh, Julian right. Assange beard? Yeah,
0: it's a little bit like the Terry Waite beard, like the hostage beard.
1: Yeah. Yeah, right. but it
0: was too trimmed.
1: Yeah, it was too well kept. Yeah.
0: Also, aren't you're supposed to get rid of your beard?
1: Yeah, you're well, Matt, you think he knows that?
0: That's right. Think, that's right. He has. You think Governor
1: out. Kemp was like, no, that's not good. You that's unhygienic.
0: That's right. Um, so for, for, isn't that weird? I took a little bit of a different uh, tack this week. It's not really a news story, but uh, there was a sports site that posted a challenge on on, on, online with some video and they showed, so Dan, if we could see this video of Mike Tyson working out.
1: That's an, isn't that terrible?
0: That he was, the dog seemed to like it.
1: At one point, yes, but at one point there was a flinch.
0: <laughs> well there would be you know that's the you're whole point. you're right
1: i shouldn't infantilize the dog
0: right right Yeah. I so should they,
1: give the dog agency yeah
0: they they started a discussion point and basically the idea is uh, are things so bad right now that you that you would step into into a ring with mike tyson for 15 15 minutes with no gloves for $2,500. And there actually were people online who, who, who would do this. So is that, that, it's sort of an indication of how far things have fallen. So I, I wanted to ask you, Katie, uh, yeah. how much money would you need to get into the ring with, Mike T- with 53-year-old Mike Tyson uh, with no gloves?
1: As long as I had a gun, <laughs> I would do it. Or if I could wear some kind of gloves with like the X Men claws. You
0: mean like with the Wolverine?
1: Wolverine thing, yeah. <laughs> right. Or if he had a fate, if he had a like Silence of the Lambs thing, because I, or no, I would. He would have to have all of his teeth removed.
0: All of his teeth removed.
1: Didn't he bite someone?
0: He did. Yes. Yes. He bit. He bit. Matt, a, yes.
1: Evander Holler Hollerfield.
0: Hollerfield. Yeah. Holler, yeah. I,
1: what is it? Is that not it? Hollyfield. Hollyfield. Okay, Evander... Yeah. Avander Hollyfield. That's some overcompensation. I thought it was like my New York accent, like Hollerfield. Yeah. But you was- came
0: out as Avandi Holly Hollerfeld,
1: the Austrian physician.
0: I'd be interested to hear what uh, what listeners of uh, and watchers of Useful Idiots for how that they respond to that question. How much would you need? Like twenty five hundred dollars is not enough. Clearly. Yeah, how
1: much would if you need, Matt?
0: In in this environment, um, there'd have to be a couple more zeros involved. Yeah, in, I at think Least, so. you know, because. You'd have to pay for the dental work and the, the the care afterwards. So
1: the dental work on him, like the tooth removal, or no, your no, own the, dental
0: the, work, the, the own repair, yeah, right. that would all just go splat in the first second, right? Would so. you
1: ever put your dog in the ring with him?
0: Uh, yeah. No, she wouldn't fare terribly well. I don't think there are probably like drunk college dudes all over the country who are lining up to volunteer for this. Wait,
1: um. but how do you do it? You'd have to get like. You'd have to do it from six feet away, so you would need nunchucks or what—a a broomstick or something.
0: Oh, right, yeah, like some some kind of like w- wushu or not wushu, yeah. like a. How would you? Yeah, I don't know. Do uh, yeah, that that's an interesting point. I think you'd you have to have be quarantined for 14 days and then go in. One of the reasons I brought this up is because I I spent a couple of days of this insane period watching Mike Tyson Mysteries on on video. If you ever watch that, if you never watched that show, I I, I strongly Mysteries? recommend. Mike Tyson Mysteries. If you haven't seen that show, I strongly recommend that you do it. It's the fun. It's like one of the funniest. Wait, thing. what is that? It's basically like a Mike Tyson version of Scooby Doo, starring Mike Tyson and Norm Macdonald as a pigeon. Oh uh, my God, we part- gotta watch that. It's it's like the funniest thing ever ever made.
1: Can so- we do MST- M S T M? tm Mystery Science Theater Mike Tyson Mr. Oh
0: yeah, no, that would be great. That would be hilarious. Right.
1: What did he say? He was like once he was like I just feel like I'm falling into Bolivian.
0: I'm, fa- I'm fading into Bolivian. Oh, Bolivian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Fading into Bol- Mike Tyson's amazing. He's actually much much smarter than people give him credit for and and the the, the show is so is completely high concept. It's, it's it's totally insane and he and makes fun of him but also embraces his insanity and he's totally into it. So Recommend it highly. Uh, anyway, uh, what do we have for, isn't that, uh, isn't that terrible? A lot. I'm assuming right? so
1: much. Yeah. Isn't that terrible? Um, but we have a a really important warning that I just want to share with people, which is that there's something called zoom bombing. Uh, hijackers are, uh, coming into zoom video calling video calls that are supposed to be about for education. I'm just going to read from the independent. Video conference calls on platforms like Zoom are being hijacked and used to broadcast pornographic images or threaten the people inside them, the FBI has warned. Such group video chats are being used to teach school classes and hold sensitive meetings but are being attacked by unknown people. The FBI shared stories of unknown people joining conference calls that were being used to teach school classes before shouting profanities or using threatening language and then leaving. A caution that people should make meetings as private as possible and take other precautions to ensure that only people invited to a call are able To get into it. The phenomenon colloquially known as Zoom bombing is not new, but more reports are emerging as people are forced to work and study from home uh, over such video teleconferencing platforms because of the corona crisis. The FBI has received multiple reports of conferences being disrupted by pornographic and or hate images and threatening language. It highlighted two stories that happened at schools in the Massachusetts area, both of which saw unknown people attack school lessons that were being conducted in Zoom. Um, and one unidentified person joined the class and shouted a profanity and yelled at the teacher's home address. Yes, FBI said, and another person, this is terrible, uh, really terrible, joined and was visible on the camera and could be seen with swastika tattoos. Honestly, I think that, you know, the swastika tattoos actually makes the, the yelling at the teacher profanities in the teacher's home address seem kind of quaint. I mean terrible, but not swastika terrible.
0: well, I don't know, you do the, know, first, the first first one could have though. could have pretty, pretty serious concrete consequences, You're right. yeah, so I don't, I don't so know maybe know it's the other way
1: around. now the yeah. swastika doesn't look so bad,
0: yeah, I mean. Play-
1: We could play a would you rather with this.
0: I'm less scared of somebody with a uh, swastika tattoo than I am of somebody shouting out my home address. So,
1: as long Uh, as they're not with, yeah, if they're not in the room with you. Yeah. Right.
0: So, Zoom bombing, right? So, people are, so what's the porn element to this again? I'm sorry.
1: I I guess they're pornographic images. I'm Uh, not sure if that means that someone does something or or plays. So, somebody's having
0: a Zoom meeting, and then before you know it, there's like a porn image that comes up. Yeah. People are bored. So that's what they're doing is that. Yeah, the
1: there's also what well, I think and it's a hard time. I was damn, this was your chance to come in and like yell something profa- profane.
3: I've been thinking about it, it but it, yeah, but then we get in big trouble. You know, it's, it's yeah, you're right. The FBI is monitoring. Yeah, yeah. we're going to get dinged. We're
1: yeah. going to get dinged. You can't get dinged. <laughs> um, so guys, don't zoom bomb. Don't get zoom bombed. Don't have um, swastika tattoos in general. Definitely don't have swastika tattoos while screaming profanities and um, announcing teachers' addresses. That's my hot take. I'm against yeah. those things.
0: Good. So we'll move on to uh, the getting to some of the things, that, things of the week that happened. Okay. So in terms of stuff that happened this week, just really quickly, I did a piece piece this week on, uh, on the bailout. We already talked a little bit about this. And I think going forward, this is going to be something that I'm probably going to be stuck on quite quite a bit. So it might, might be worth getting into some of the larger themes that probably going forward are going to be important for people to sort sifting out what happened in this bailout. And I think the main thing that people have to understand about what happened with this rescue package is that it, it pretty it can commits the government to an like an unprecedented amount of support of uh, Wall Street in particular, and there's in the same way that we saw in 2000 post post 2008 all sorts of crazy profiteering uh, and opportunities for for banks to make and financial companies to make basically risk-free money. Uh, that stuff is completely baked into this rescue package that passed unanimously. And just to take one small example uh, for people to to think about. One of the new forms of assistance in this in this bill that was different from 2008 is that the Fed and the Treasury are now going to be buying corporate bonds. So at the last time around, the the government basically spent a lot to prop up the mortgage markets. They bought mortgage backed securities. They took bad mortgage assets off the books of the banks. That was one of the big things they did. This time they're expanding that activity to basically buying the debt of companies and buying and, and supporting the bond market, which is a whole new galaxy of support. You know, they're essentially they're supporting corporate America now in, in an sort of indirect way. But the amazing thing is corporate bonds, like the biggest corporate bond funds are managed by these companies that are called asset managers. Like the biggest one is is BlackRock. And The Fed hired BlackRock to do its buying of corporate bonds. And again, BlackRock manages the most, the biggest corporate bonds. So now this company, BlackRock, is basically gonna be in charge of buying hundreds of billions of dollars worth of these financial products that they manage. So it's gonna be, I think it's hard for people to even wrap their heads around. How massive the opportunity for profiteering is going to be there and, and manipulation. Uh, and this is only just like one small corner of the stuff that happened. There's other things like the banks are going to be getting paid a huge fee to administer the small business loans. There's $377 billion worth of aid for that. If you then they're imagining it's going to be. L- leveraged up three times. So really they're going to be spending over a trillion dollars on this and banks are going to be making a 4% fee on every loan that they give out, which means among other things that they're not going to be incentivized to make sure the loans are paid off because they, they make money as long as the loan is outstanding. So, and that's free money. There's no risk. The government is a hundred percent backing that stuff. So, so it's, that's tens of billions of dollars of free money we just handed to a bunch of banks. So there's, there's going to be tons and tons of this stuff as we, as we sort through the fine print. But already it looks like, like probably hundreds of billions of dollars of fees and other profits that are going to go towards Wall Street companies in this thing. The, the sort of bigger bigger picture issue is, is after 2008, we didn't really have a plan for how we were going to rescue, rescue the economy. So the, the solution was let's just throw like an ass load of money at the financial sector and hopefully it'll all work out. And what ended up happening was we addicted the whole financial sector to this endless stream of money that kept coming. You know, They slashed interest rates, nothing. Then they did these things called quantitative easing, which is basically the, the Fed inventing a trillion dollars and then buying stuff with it, you know, whether it's mortgages or other financial products. So it's like they got a a steady stream of support and welfare from the state to buy all this stuff. And because they were artificial, they were addicted to this artificial stimulus when they were, they were susceptible to any disruption to the economy. So this thing, this COVID thing happens. And now, they basically run, run to the government and they say, okay, if you don't double down and give us a gazillion dollars more every five minutes, it's going to collapse. So basically we're, we've now had commit to supporting the house of cards we were already supporting. And it's like, it's like piling the 2008 mistake on top of of the previous of this mistake uh it's uh so it's it's a mess and 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 the financial sector is totally psyched about it i mean right. I, I, even though there's panic uh about the long-term implications of all this um uh, you know the, the the signal from the government is there's we're not we're, we're just going to endlessly support you like the fed, right. the fed chairman said we are not going to run out of ammunition which is we, a translation we're we're just going to keep printing money and throwing it at you that's pretty radical thinking because tr- traditionally, this is like modern monet- monetary theory. If you ever heard of this, so the, the yeah, of idea course. that you, you, you Richard
1: you, Wolff,
0: right? That you, it's there isn't actually a danger of inflation. You, we should just endlessly print money and buy stuff and support everything, right? Right. So from from the financial markets to Medicare for all to whatever, and they've never tested it out. Now they're doing it. So right. we're going to find out what what happens when you do that. Now,
1: I think we should do MST. MTM MMT, where we do mystery science theater commentary on Mike Tyson mysteries and modern monetary, modern monetary theory. theory lectures. And uh, yeah, <laughs> we play some Richard Wolf, Rick Wolf, and uh, we play some Mike Tyson mysteries. And we just yeah, we sit, we face it, and then we film ourselves from the back.
0: We should we should get Mike Tyson to comment on what he thinks of modern monetary theory. What, yeah. what is, does he does he think that the, the, the traditional like inflationary factors are going to come into play in all this? Yeah. What would his answer be? To that?
1: I don't know. We I think they're going to fade on.
0: into Bolivian, right? I
1: think what if that was his fading into Bolivian was actually like a a really um, nuanced critique of uh, Latin American um, uh, of like ex- extractive capitalism.
0: Could have been absolutely. right. Like maybe
1: he's a real really big Eduardo uh, Galeano fan.
0: He, he might, he Open might very well in be. America,
1: the book yeah. that, uh, Chavez RIP gave to, uh, we Barack should get Obama. Mike on
0: Mike. He's, he's a funny dude. He's he's He's, he's I mean, he's insane. Yeah. Uh, and you know, he's got some stuff in his past, but, but, uh, yeah. but, uh, very funny, interesting guy. So if you
1: could have one athlete come on the show, who would it be? Wow. Living athlete.
0: One living athlete. I mean, my mind goes straight to Charles Barkley, but I don't know. How about, he how probably about would.
1: He would come on to talk about politics.
0: He would, yeah. He's
1: good. He's good. at He dings the Dems. Have you heard him? Yeah. When it, he was talking to Doug Jones?
0: Well, of course. But you know, the, fam- the famous quote Doug from Brown. him is "Is uh, he was going to run for governor once in Arizona as a Republican. And I think it was his mother or his aunt, so, but Charles, the Republicans are only for the rich. And he's like, well, that's me.
1: Right. So. He's honest. <laughs> he, he stays honest. Yeah. Well, he was, he was doing some campaigning for Doug Jones uh-huh. um, when he was running against Roy Moore. And even though Doug Jones won, obviously, he did have some really, you know, smart words about how the Dems, if they turn their back on the working class, they're not going to be able to win.
0: Right. Um, and actually, you're right. It was the governor of Alabama. He won the right for governor of Alabama oh, and okay. Arizona. Yeah. 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 No, Chuck's interesting. Uh, who, who would you pick if, uh, of, of the athletes?
1: Wow. And Matt, wow. All A states look the same to you?
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, really that,
1: problematic. Woke button. Woke button.
0: Statist. That's yeah. statism.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, which athlete would I want? I would want a really handsome Spanish soccer player, football player. player. All
0: right. So uh, quickly, we should talk about um, what happened with Joe Biden again this week. I I know we're kind of hitting the same theme over and over again. It's
1: not our fault, though.
0: But, uh, you know, Joe had another seriously tough week. And uh, I think it might be worth going through some of these uh, and just talking about you know, is he getting worse? What, what, what the hell is going on? He had just multiple incoherent moments. Dan, if we could take a look at the first one,
1: maybe we can have a rating system where it's like X number of golden leg hairs up. Could be, right. it could be golden leg hairs up, golden leg hairs down, or it could be like. How many golden leg hairs? Yeah, like max. on a
0: scale of one to ten. How many yeah. gold, is it? Is it eight golden leg hairs yeah. up? Yeah. Okay, right. we can do that.
2: And in order to avoid that, those very high numbers, we have to do at least several things. One, we have to uh, depend on what the president's going to do right now. And first of all, he has to uh, tell, uh, uh, wait till the cases before anything happens. Look, the whole idea is. He's got to get in place things that were shortages of.
0: I think one thing that people have to understand: this is this is the lowest pressure media environment that you can possibly be in. Is the friendly cable news hit. I mean, he's not going. This isn't even a debate where you're where you're getting potentially hostile responses from somebody. Right. When when a when somebody like him goes on a cable news hit. They know they're going to be treated with kid gloves. They're not going to get hostile questioning. Only like the rankest beginner would need to read off a, uh, a cue card. And, uh, and I talked about this with a, with a fellow uh, journalist just yesterday. Um, you know, you might get somebody like who's an ER doctor who's never been on cable right. who might have to read something or if it was a quote you know, you you might bring a card on just so you don't, you get the exact wording, right. But an experienced politician doing that, there's like, there's a major issue there because, you know, normally they know they have a strategy. The media strategy for candidates is here are three things that I'm going to say, no matter what the questions are, I'm going to get in get out. Uh, I'll shift the conversation to these and then, you know, then we'll do it. So for him to not be able to finish a sentence, or to forget what he's talking about in the middle of reading off a card should tell people a lot about what's going on with with the, with, with Biden.
1: I think. With Biden brain.
0: Yeah, and, and we should also point out that there there are some people who say that this is unfair because Biden is a stutterer and he's obviously not stuttering. But there's a you know th- there is a thing where because you have a speech impediment, you are using it stresses your mind to. Focus on getting the words out correctly, and that might lead to a person stumbling mentally in the middle of a sentence, and that does happen. But the only thing I would say about that is that the the Biden one of the things that was characteristic of him in the past is that he was he had conquered that problem. He was terrific uh, at dealing with his stutter, uh, and in fact, he made it part of his story. It's a huge part of his book. Uh, he would talk about it on the stump as you know. This is an example of how you know, I'm a person who doesn't back down from a fight. And I, you know, when I'm knocked down, I get up and, and all that. So yes, that can happen, but it never happened with him before now. Not really, you know, not, not to this degree.
1: Yeah. I don't right. know. I don't know what you think about that. Well, no, I mean, like, we're not going to, well, there's two issues. One is that let's say he did have those that trouble with that because of a stutter. What do you think Trump would do? first of all, like just in terms of electability, let's just say he had that his stutter made his mind work harder. Right. Like it would be problematic for we would woke button it if Trump like made fun of him.
0: Right. But yes.
1: he would still make fun of him.
0: Right. And he would imply that it wasn't his stutter. the Yeah, the,
1: exactly. Right. Yeah. right? So right. there's that. But the other thing is, as you pointed out, the guy has gone his entire recent career without having to uh, having without being cognitively compromised because of his stutter
0: right exactly
1: so that would be great though for all of his lies that would be great if he was just like oh i well you kind of suggested that matt because i this again this is it goes back to that dumb versus disingenuous i'm not saying he's dumb but like uh, forgetful versus disingenuous right? right it's unclear whether or not you i feel like felt like there was more forgetfulness i think it's more disingenuous kind of entitlement and and uh, refusal, uh, or you know, recently, especially kind of years of being allowed to to lie without any consequence.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, he's he, he he probably knows that he can just bail in the middle of anything and, and get right. away with it. So there's yeah. that. But it's starting to get weird.
1: It is kind of does have a jazzish improv quality to it. <laughs> you know, that does yeah. kind of suggest. In fact, what we should do is we should put him over a jazz beat. And that see would how be it interesting, sounds.
0: yeah, yeah. I have, like spoken
1: I have, word, kind of.
0: Right, right, yeah. Actually, that would be a great spoken word poetry slam.
1: Yeah.
0: Biden speak. Yeah, yeah. Bi- yeah. yeah. Let's, uh, let's, let's check out Luhan virus.
2: Uh, our Secretary of State insisted, and this broke the meeting up basically in terms of her influence, that this be called the Luhan virus.
0: That's not terribly bad, but it's just to me it's funny a little bit. Um, this one is. He was this, also
1: just the people who aren't viewing. He's also looking down at notes. Yeah,
0: he one. was looking down at notes. So he's looking down and saying Lujan virus," which is okay. I mean, look, but it's the cumulative. Well, we didn't.
1: We didn't rate the first one. This one should we? Oh rate? yeah,
0: I would say the first one is like a five golden. Like here's way up.
1: Out of how many? Ten. Yeah, for Joe five. Yeah. And then five, I'm going to give that one five golden leg hairs up. So it's always going to be up. It's okay. Got yeah. it. So you would say that that's five like golden leg hairs up. I'll say five also. And then the Lujan one, how many would that be?
0: That's a one. That's yeah, just one, one, lo- one lonely leg hair. little golden, one, one leg.
1: lone, one lone yeah. leg hair, one, this one is, lone golden leg hair up. Yeah,
0: exactly. So we're agreed on that. This, this one is worse. Uh, Dan, can we say a oh, way to sleep with my wife? Can we see that? It's
2: supposed to be opening day.
3: Oh, oh, oh opening no. day. <laughs> wow. Well, you know what? This is not the way to win voters, Mr. Well, Vice I'll President. I'll tell you what, but it's the way to be able to
2: sleep with my wife.
3: If I were, <laughs> She's a
2: Philly girl. If I oh, were I, for the God. Phillies, I'd be out of luck, man. What I think you're going to see more of, Jimmy, is I think you're going to see more of what Amy Globuchar has been proposing, <laughs> that is being able to vote early in your...
1: That's interesting. So, th- of course, you have to decide... <laughs> Well, which we, we should divide that up into two, right?
0: Yeah, I mean it's like three things. the first is the maniacal laugh is great because it's not really clear what he's what he's laughing in response right. to. Is it, I, is it my I'm so goofy I'm going to laugh at this or is it is he thinking about something dastardly like what's right. going on there? That was a real that was a Willem Dafoe kind of laugh.
1: Yeah, it was. Yeah. So there's the statement about sleeping with his wife, right?
0: That that's a really a three part one, right? There's the maniacal like Willem Dafoe Green Goblin laugh thing at the beginning there mm-hmm. right yeah then there's the i need to wear a phillies hat so that to get my wife to sleep with me thing which right. is, is pretty pretty weird considering uh, yeah
1: there's a lot of baggage there and yeah, also it's, just a, it's very tmi
0: the the visual of joe biden naked except for a phillies hat that's that's tough you know i'm not sure about that
1: yeah. right. i'm i feel like you could get sued for saying that not by biden but by people who listen to our show for the trauma that you inflicted on them
0: right yeah, exactly. there be PTSD secondary damage. Right there, yeah. Right, and then the Amy Globuchar, I like that. Right.
1: Maybe it's his nickname for her. Globy. Yeah. Globy. <laughs> well, we call her the. What did we call her? We should have called her the Clobe or something.
0: I mean, who? What? What's going to duck gonna, killer? Gonna, duck murderer? What? What? What's going to be next? Pete Fudicej?
1: Cerny Banders.
0: Cerny, cerny banders yeah I mean what's what's your what's your take on that one Like, he shouldn't he shouldn't have gone to the thing about his wife I don't think that was yeah, that was awkward that
1: was weird that was creepy and then the globa thing on its own wouldn't be weird but when you have in the same clip a weird maniacal laugh a an inappropriate wife joke and right. then the globachar it kind of adds up what do you think Jill's response to that was like what do you think happens to Jill when she watches these things does her blood pressure go up whenever he does a media hit I
0: don't know. And she's got to be holding on for dear life at this point. Although I hate to speculate about these things, but it's, it's, uh, it's well, so strange. I mean, the bite the finger biting was, was, I know. Enough, you know, well,
1: remember you got to swallow. <laughs> I wonder if she just gives herself a pep talk every day in the mirror.
0: I don't know. And it's tough. It's tough.
1: Oh, wait. So how, how many golden hairs? Do oh uh, have? yeah. Maniacal laugh. I'm going to go,
0: I'm going to go with a, a six and a half on that one.
1: So we're going to do that as one thing. Okay, sure, because it's one hit. Sure, six and a half. I'll say six. Six golden leg hairs way up.
0: Yeah, I think it's just the, the, it's a way to sleep with my wife with that grin on his face. That's going to be a campaign ad, I think. Uh, Okay, we got one more. Let's see, let's say, let's look at, uh, fortunately, I'm alone in my home.
2: I have not talked to any individual. (sighs) Excuse me. (laughs) You know, you're supposed to cough into your elbow. I don't know, sir. I learned that actually covering your White House. No, actually, actually, that's true. But fortunately, I'm alone in my home, but that's okay all right i I agree you're right you should just it's just it's kind of old school to do it with your hand do it into your elbow you're supposed to do it um
0: uh, so bullshit right i mean
1: well a couple things yeah that is joe what you need to do is strip your clothes get naked and put on a philly's hat and then you won't be alone (laughs) in your home step number one step number two jake tapper that's like the most um hardball i've ever seen him go
0: right yeah exactly like
1: that is that is adversarial journalism
0: that was uh that was that was jake jake tapper's mike wallace impersonation right there yeah. right yeah the, the penetrating confrontational question yeah i you think he's willing, ang-
1: yeah you, right. i think that he's actually very angry at biden like i think genuinely right i think he's like nervous that he's going to infect people
0: yeah, th- through his airwaves, right? Well,
1: no, I think in gen- not himself, but I th- I feel like there was some genuine like righteous public health concern in Jake Tapper's uh, admonition, yeah. right? Like he's like, look, you're, we're all doing this. We're walking around, you know, that was kind of, that was interesting.
0: That, that was uh, the, the the didactic factor and that was pretty interesting. But the, the reason I, I picked that clip though is because it's pretty clearly not true that Biden's alone in his home. So but, Yeah, he but, set
1: up his own camera.
0: Right, yeah, but the, his, instinct to move immediately to an excuse that isn't true True? (laughs) you know i think is is interesting well
1: i think we have to have a couple a couple metrics right so we have the golden hairs and then i really do think we have to do like what it's lie or what lie or brain fart or lie
0: right yes exactly brain fart or lie yeah did
1: we sorry so how many golden leg hairs do you give that
0: I would give that. Um, that's just a, a two, probably. Again, I mean, these aren't these aren't terribly bad ones, but it's the it's the accumulation right. of all this that. Uh, I
1: kind of think that the handcuff combined with him being not that great, him and his campaign being not that great on CDC regulations. Right earns it a couple more. I'm going to say like four golden leg hairs way
0: up. Wow! All right, so we had a bunch of golden leg hairs on that one. That's uh, interesting. All right, so let's let's go on. We had a real fun segment last, last time where we, that we started with uh, the Useful Idiots mailbag where people are asking us video questions. And uh, I think we had a really a bunch of good new ones uh, this week. So this is something we want to do each each week. So we'll, we'll keep asking you. But just in general, if you ever have a question for us, just take take a video of yourself asking the question, and there's a good shot that you'll end up on the show. Uh, and we want to stress that it's better to do it on video. Like you can write us a question, we may be able to answer it. But if we have we have pictures, we're more right, likely we to put it on. That's
1: yeah. That's we prioritize that. Yeah.
0: So let's go to Let's go to Josh from Indianapolis and see. Let, let listen to his question.
3: Hi, Katie and Matt. I absolutely love the show. This is Josh from Indianapolis. My question is, there is a 48 year difference between the ages of Bernie Sanders and AOC. So as far as progressive leaders go, who is in the middle? Thanks.
0: Awesome question, Josh. What's your take on this, Katie? (laughs) Globachar. Globuchar.
1: (laughs) I need the ages. Let's see. What is it? A 48 year difference?
0: Yeah. So I did the math on this. And okay. if, you, if you split that uh, exactly in half, what you end up with is somebody who's roughly 56 years old, like between the, the AOC age and the Bernie age. So I went and looked for people who are 56, uh, famous people who are 56. And the only politicians who really fall into that category are Sarah Palin and Michelle Obama. So I, those neither of those terribly feel like the future progressive uh, middle leader. So if we're talking about the, you know, this is this is like Little Red Riding Hood, right? This is the porridge that's just right, not too hot.
1: Goldilocks, Matt, Goldilocks.
0: Gold, yeah, right. So, but you know, who who else is that age? Coolio, Lars Ulrich, Wanda Sykes, Jason Isaac. I don't know. I mean, none of those people really feel. Like I
1: like Coolio.
0: Coolio, right? So he has a
1: lot of gravitas to him. Remember, he quotes the Bible. And that song, right. you know, Gangsters what Gangster's Paradise,
0: Paradise, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think I've only ever listened to the seen the Amish Paradise video. I don't think I've ever seen the Coolio video.
1: Oh, I haven't seen there's an Amish one? I didn't even know about that.
0: That's the Weird Al Yankovic version. Oh god it the yeah. Coolio song. Oh
1: so, in Amish Paradise, yeah.
0: How old is Weird Al Yankovic? Could he be good the good question?
1: Members? Can we yeah. And I don't want to shame. Dan, how
0: old is Weird Al? I'm
3: gonna guess he's like in his sixties. Yeah. He's he's exactly sixty.
0: He's sixty? So that's almost so that's in fine. That's I don't probably... want to put
1: you on the spot, Matt, and we can bleep this out. You can also just take the fifth. But how uh how where are you, are you close to this uh age range? You're I late.
0: just turned fifty.
1: So we got like so I'm, I'm too young. Yeah, you're too young, but you're if a, No, you're too young. <laughs> I I I knew you weren't that I knew you weren't fifty six. I'm just saying, you know, in a pinch.
0: Yeah, I don't think I'm the person though. You don't I, think I, you're I, the I, progressive I think, I think,
1: leader that America needs?
0: I think Coolio and Lars Ulrich are closer, but, you know, the, the, the serious answers is probably somebody more like the, our friend of show, you know, Shahid B- Buttar. He's probably younger than me actually.
1: Yeah. Wow.
0: But, but, but conceptually, I'm, it's, you're
1: just saying, okay, someone of that ilk, ilk. Someone,
0: someone who's in this new wave of yes, I agree. candidates. Yeah. I, I think, you know, re- realistically, like that person, uh, it's, it's probably not somebody who has the exact political formula of AOC, right? I think it's probably the, the, the person who ends up being the next big progressive leader is probably going to have to develop something that's a little different. I would imagine. I, I think, I think there's a, there's another brand of politics that is going to emerge. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that's not that, but, um, but yeah, it, it, it's probably there. There's a lot of people who are coming up now because of those two politicians and who just haven't had a chance to really have a lot of spotlight so it's probably right. somebody from among that group
1: how old is sherrod he's not that progressive but i'm just, how old is sherrod brown uh
0: older, older so you yeah. Yeah. got a
1: great voice though
0: he does i once did an interview with him and he when he took his socks off in the interview which i thought was interesting
1: was there how pungent or not pungent
0: no not pungent it was it was it was it was all right he's an interesting dude he's funny he's funny he's very good on the finance stuff that I, that I covered for years. Right, uh, he was a, one of the major, too big to fail people. But, um, but I don't think you know he's a traditional Democrat, really. You know, basically. yeah, it's
1: pretty. Yeah, he's yeah. not for Medicare for all. So sorry we didn't give you a better answer on that. But thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. we love thanks, you thanks just like you love the show. And I like that you said Katie and Matt. All
0: right, let's look at um, a Dean from Ireland.
2: Hi, Matt and
4: Katie. Dean from Ireland here. There's been a lot of concerns lately with uh, the coronavirus about like authoritarian measures being introduced and I haven't read that much about it but with some governments it seems not likely to be a major concern others it seems like a serious concern I was just
3: wondering looking around the world what countries do you see at risk of uh, turning in a more authoritarian direction permanently as a result of the coronavirus
1: that's one point for you. That was Matt and Katie, so you get that one, and I have one for yeah, Katie and Yeah, now it's even.
3: Horatia
0: is even. So uh, here's what I think. Thank I you for I, the
1: question, I, by the way.
0: I, I, I have made, done extensive research into this, and here's my uh, super-duper top-secret revelations about which countries are going to enact the most authoritarian measures, and I can tell you exactly what those measures are going to be, uh, deep sources on the inside of the intelligence world, and so here they are. All right. And that was uh, the list of countries and all the things that they're going to be enacting. So thanks for that question. That that was that was great.
1: But you are you are nervous about that. Seriously, right? You are nervous about this happening. Yeah. Like you're one of the few people who's kind of been talking about that.
0: There's no question that they're going to take every advantage of every opportunity to enact every conceivable kind of authoritarian measure in response to this. The problem is that until this thing is straightened out, everybody's going to be in favor of it. And there is a possibility that they might even be appropriate until uh, right. but they, the, the question is, will they ever peel it back? And I, that's what I worry about. So do you worry about that?
1: Yeah, I do. I think there's this. we're in the, these weird uh, weird um, hell purgatory, maybe, between like people not taking health things seriously enough and also, at the same time, you, you're taking advantage of it to do terrible things in the under the guise of, of protecting our health, if that makes sense.
0: Right. And we're going to see, you know, the National Emergency Act, they're, they're going to, you know, avail themselves of every power that they have, right? So they're going to try to suspend habeas corpus probably in some of these countries so they're going to assert the right to detain people because they're a public health threat they're going to quarantine people and people are going to be it's probably going to be appropriate in some in some cases but right. it's you know there's 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 you know the the the, the tracking right that's going to be another major issue are you, are they going to use cell phone technology to track people and then are they going to turn off that ability later like right Unlikely, right? Yeah, unlikely. Or, or are they already doing that? You know, that's the other thing. Like we, yeah, as we found out with the FISA uh, scandal recently, you know, they've they've been making very extensive use of secret uh, surveillance powers already. But they, you know, now this is going to give them another tool to. To go in that direction. Uh, let's go to Daryl from Buffalo.
3: Hi, Matt and Katie, coming to you from lovely Buffalo, New York. I'm concerned that my neighbors are Russian trolls. They're always quoting Dostoevsky, they're playing Russian symphony music,
1: and they share pretty funny memes about the Democrats on Facebook. How can I know for sure? And how can I know that they're not interfering with the integrity of our
0: elections? You want to take that one?
1: I'm um, yet sure.
0: <laughs> you're not yet sure.
1: <laughs> I just added myself. Yeah. Well, you I did. just realized that you're and you won that round, uh, Matt. That I came. did. Uh, I just realized that you're often called uh, accused of having Russian connections, Matt.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: all I'm going to say is you did live in Buffalo.
0: I did live in Buffalo. That is that so, is very true. Yes. I mean, in fact, somebody pointed out, I'm still registered here. as a green in that county for some reason. Uh,
1: oh, you speak Russian. I do. You uh, are registered as a Green Party member. Uh, Jill Stein. Don't need to tell you she's been to Russia. Uh, And then the Buffalo thing. I mean, the evidence is mounting. Are you this guy's neighbor?
0: I might be. Yeah.
1: So what's the responsible thing for him to do?
0: Well, if you want, if you're trying to figure out if somebody's Russian or not, I think the, all yeah. you have to do is go up and ask them a simple question, and if they in re, in answering they never shut the fuck up, then they're probably Russian. <laughs> I mean, that's, oh, that's
1: it. That's I thought it. you that's were going to say the simple question is.
0: It doesn't matter. It can be anything. Yes. You know, what's two plus nine? Oh,
1: like uh, what time is it?
0: Yeah, what time is it? If you're still if you're still there four hours later, they're you're probably Russian. Right. Or if you if you ask directions, uh, and the answer involves. Giving you the directions to someplace else. So, like, you know, the typical Russian way of giving somebody directions is okay, you, you take a left and you look down the street, and there's this really nice bakery there, and they sell these really nice little rolls. They're too expensive, but, you know, they, they probably still make them. Anyway, don't go that way, go the other way. Uh, and <laughs> in Russia, that, that that's classic. Like, they go, right. Like, go the other way. It's a
1: pedagogical mistake, though. You're never supposed to mention the things you're not, you don't want people to remember.
0: Right. Although oh, in Russia, yeah, that's one of the charming things about Russia, like all kinds of sort of literary and and uh, lingual things that are supposed to be no-no's in other, in other uh, right. languages actually turn out to be kind of charming and funny in that language. Right. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're if my favorite author, Gogol, right? He if you read his books, he breaks every single rule about like what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to keep your paragraphs short. They're like five pages long. Yeah. Um, It's it's a Russian thing. So, um, but yeah, Yeah. just just ask him something. And if, and if it doesn't, if it takes too long to answer like us, uh, then they're probably Russian.
3: Um, Let's do Let's go to Vito. Hi, Katie. Hi, Matt. (sighs) Um, I'm wondering what you think about the idea that we never hear our leaders questioned about how they would have alternatively responded to 9-11 considering everybody's always running the one-liner that the war was a mistake but then mm, no one ever gives an alternative this is what i would have done given what we know about these consequences
1: veto first of all i like the way you think i like the way you start off your question <laughs> um what do you what do you uh I mean, don't a lot of Dems say that Iraq was a mistake? They don't. A lot of them don't say Afga- Afghanistan was. but
0: Well, I think that's why you don't get an answer to that question. That's why you don't even get that question, because so obviously going into Iraq was a mistake because it was the wrong country. Um, right. It had nothing to do with 9-11, so the right. policy response it was totally stupid. And, of course, it didn't work, whatever the, whatever it was they were trying to do. But the yeah, underlying- yeah, it was a
1: good move for ISIS.
0: Yeah, yeah, but the the, so the larger concept of how we responded to you know the war on terror was that we had to set up a permanent military garrison in the Middle East, uh, and we had to do democracy promotion. So in places where there was not democracy that that we considered were breeding grounds for terrorism, we had to establish democracies and then support them militarily if necessary. Right, so that assumption even even though people will say invading iraq is a mistake the sort of larger foreign policy idea that the the way we stay safe is to establish democracies and maintain them you know by force if necessary that's that's still pretty much the orthodoxy so that's why you don't get that question of politicians like what would what should we have done instead of right. sending 10 gazillion people to the middle east and and invading afghanistan and and Syria and Libya and all these other places and keeping bases everywhere, right? I mean, they they don't they don't see that as a mistake. I think even in even in the press, it's only become fashionable now to talk about uh, Afghanistan being a mistake. You know, for a while that was the just war, right? That was the correct. Yeah, war. Yeah,
1: exactly. And, right. You know, just the just like the first sea- Gulf War was the good Gulf War,
0: right? And that was the so when Democrats were worried about not looking tough enough, they said, look, we supported the Afghanistan invasion. Right. right. So we're, we're not like we're against war. We're very ready to start war.
1: Right. So we're not tough on national sec- We're not soft on national security.
0: There's no thing that you should have done instead of invade Iraq, except not invade Iraq. Yeah. Right. right. Like, yeah, you know, it's like the doctor, doctor. It hurts when I do this. Like, don't do that.
1: Right. right. And yeah. what about Afghanistan? I mean, that's the one that's that's controversial. Right.
0: Yeah, they shouldn't have done that either. Again, again, all these things, and we we talked about this in previous shows, right? The the thinking is all based on the same faulty thinking that they've had in dozens of different arenas dating back decades, including Vietnam, which is we got to invade these places. We have to prop up whoever supports us. And we, what we end up having to do is, you know, massacre the opposition, which in turn generates more and, right. uh, opposition, which forces us to commit more resources, Right, right. which forces us to increase the brutality, which creates more opposition and,
1: right. and radicalizes people and makes them. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that's how you start with a, a problem that was in Vietnam. And so the next thing you know, right. you've got one in Laos and Cambodia, it's, it's, Similar yeah. to what we've gotten, you know, with Iraq, you know, you you, you go in there, and now you've got all problems in every country right. that covers Iraq.
1: Right? Yeah, there's a. I feel like those questions are kind of a an interesting litmus test. It's like liberal versus left. I know that you don't fall on that line exactly, right. but there is a difference. There's like the libs are like the Afghanistan war was good, and the first Iraq war was good. Then there's another group of people that I I part of that's like the first Iraq war was bad. Afghanistan was bad. And another litmus test where I feel like there's the same kind of dividing line is whether a, Vietnam was a mistake, right. like good intentions, but but a mistake, or bad, always bad and bad intentions.
0: Yes. And, and a lot of that has to do with just what your historical interpretation of what happened was. Right. In the common memory, we went to war in Vietnam uh, you know, to protect South the, Viet- the South Vietnamese against the North Vietnamese. Actually, we really invaded South Vietnam to prop up the leader there and help him put down an internal South Vietnamese opposition movement. And then later, it became that that became inter- intertwined with uh, a war against the North. Right. And so, I think most people didn't even think of it conceptually that way as as us occupying a country and putting down an internal opposition movement so yeah it, it's uh, that's uh, the one of chomsky's big points right is that we're we're allowed to think that vietnam was a well meaning mistake but not that uh, we
1: just fumbled we dropped right. the ball on yeah yeah right. that's why
0: you, you you'll still see that language constantly in in stories about afghanistan or iraq like the word blundering i, I yeah. even did it um by mistake somebody i got busted you, for this
1: you blundered like, by blunder by saying yeah, blunder
0: i blundered you blunder blunder Yep. Yep. That's a cliche. You you can fall into doing that. It's not a blunder. Like they, they went in with their eyes wide open doing it, you know? So Who good question though.
1: Who busted you on that?
0: Oh, I don't know. So I, was- I, I wrote it and it was like in a, it was in an article about the, the uh, anniversary of the Iraq invasion. invasion. Right.
1: That's interesting. I talked
0: about our blundering war efforts there. And somebody's like, you know, that, well, that's bullshit. It wasn't blundering. And,
1: and you're pretty critical of that stuff. So that's kind of a sign of how strong the messaging around that is.
0: Totally. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's very difficult to avoid the cliches because they're just omnipresent, right? right. Like, everything you read about this is going to have that, that element, every movie you see, right. And, you know, Forrest Gump is the, is the good guy. He's it's the, it's the bad war, but the good guy, I mean, all that stuff is part of your psyche. So, okay. Okay. So
1: some great listener feedback and, and we'll keep getting, if we missed your questions, we'll get, we'll get to them. Thank you guys. This is democracy in action. Absolutely. Participatory democracy. Yeah.
0: So let's do this. The segment that was got a lot of feedback last week, uh, Biden versus Trump,
1: which I think I won by one.
0: No, it was tied. Wasn't it tied?
1: I don't know. We should go back. You definitely thought it no, was tied. I, I you... tied
0: it at one point and then you then you regain the lead. Yeah. Right. So let's do it again. We're going to we're going to listen to a bunch of state statements and see this is the Bloomberg test. Um, they did. They published this. Oh, I
1: keep thinking you mean it's like Michael. It's right. It's in Bloomberg. Right. Yeah. But it's yeah. This is so, so meta.
0: Basically, we're listening to a quote and seeing if it's if it's Trump or Biden who said yeah. it. So what do we got, Dan?
3: First up, uh, quote, I guess we'll have to compare IQ tests and I can tell you who is going to win.
1: See, Matt and I have very different approaches to this. I'm a very honest person, and I see the best in people, and so I just try to be like, "Who would it be?" But Matt looks into the like, tries to get into the psychology
0: of the questioner.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah. of the Of the person kind of putting this list together. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah. You work backwards. And the answer is always in the question.
1: Right. Um, so I would say, if I'm going to play honestly as opposed to sneakily, I would say that that's Trump.
0: I'm going to say that that's that's Biden because they're they're trying to make us think it's Trump.
1: Right. It's
3: Trump. Oh, shit. And the last one that was similar was Biden. Right? Really? Yeah, it was. was Oh, I see. You know, if I had
0: remembered that, I probably would have said Trump. But anyway, go ahead. Okay.
3: Okay. Next one. Quote. Nobody has more respect for women than I do, nobody. Nobody has more respect.
0: Oh, I know this one, wait.
1: I'm gonna say Trump.
3: I'm gonna say Biden. It's Trump.
1: Ah, oh, fuck.
3: Oh. Yeah, it was, it was during his third debate against Clinton in 2016. Ah, oh, shit, how could I not remember that? I don't, yeah. bad. All right, Katie's up to, uh, all right. Next one.
1: Let's you know, let's call it it. I'm done. No no no,
3: no, 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 no,
1: no, really? Okay, yeah. Next one. Yeah.
3: OK. Quote, what I'm trying to do is go around from town to town and I'm drawing as big of crowds, bigger than anybody. Have you seen anybody draw bigger crowds than me here in this state?
1: See, playing as Katie and not as Matt, the Katie and the Katie and me would say Trump. But that's such a Trumpy sounding thing that that we'd really have to do an interview with the guy who put this test together i feel like to play this well
0: uh, stick to the point who who said that
1: am i am i playing am i using the katie method or the yeah. meta method
0: well you're just answering
1: trump but it's going to be biden because it's too easy biden yes See, i gave that to you though i gave that to you i feel That's like you but pressured. that's
0: fair. I pressured you into that.
1: Yeah, you're right. His
0: so.
1: Yeah, but you know what? Fine, you can get that one. But I wanted. To, let me state for the record that that one was so Trumpy that I knew it was Biden. <laughs> well, Where was it?
3: said so. Biden made the remarks while campaigning in Iowa in August. Okay, here we go. This is a good one. Quote: You cannot go to a 7-Eleven or a Dunkin' Donuts unless you have a slight Indian accent. I'm not joking.
1: Biden.
0: Yeah, that's Biden. That's unfair. She know. No. I know she knows that one.
1: Well, anyway, that was a great game. Sorry, I beat you, Matt, in the uh, Trump versus I Biden. I don't think
0: you're that sorry. But anyway, go ahead.
1: <laughs> Thank. Uh, thankful I beat you. Um, so moving forward, moving on. Uh, that was a great segment. Now we have our interview. Really excited to be speaking to Johan Hari, who is a great writer who's written a lot of interesting articles. Also, really great books, like New York uh, Times
0: best selling author.
1: What, New York Times best selling author. Um, I love his. Uh, Two of his books, uh, Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs, which is really good. It's all about the war on drugs, obviously, but it's really interesting. Talks about everything from like Billie Holiday to um, uh, legalization to, you know, Nixon and uh, recommended and then Lost Connections.
0: Why You're Depressed and How to Find Hope.
1: Yeah, it's his other book.
0: Very cool book. As yeah. uh, as we'll, we'll get into all of it because yeah. it's well, a lot. A lot of what we're going to talk about is depression, how you deal with the crisis, and depression, yeah. and what it means politically. So, great conversation. Let's let's uh, let's go to that right now.
1: Thank you so much. So excited to speak to Johan Hari. Right. Uh, joining us yes, from London. Yes, we are
0: excited, and but also saddened because well, this is, yeah. this is uh, obviously we're going to talk about your books and your and, and your and your amazing work. But there's there's an occasion here also, right? Which we got to talk about which is you you've got it right you, you've got the bug
4: well I, I don't think i've got it now so three weeks ago i was in moscow okay and i came back i flew back on a, a plane full of italians I only remember they were Italian because I asked them where they were from because my dad's from Switzerland, just the other side of the Italian border. And I was, didn't really think about it. I thought, oh, they will have been in, you know, they will have been in Italy for a while. Um, they, so they, I've thought, oh, well, they would have been in Russia for a while. Uh, and then exactly a week later, having felt completely fine, I was coming home and I noticed, uh, I suddenly noticed that my teeth were chattering. It was really weird. I thought it funny. Maybe is it really cold tonight? And then I realized uh, about five minutes later that my, my body was shaking, you know, with with like uh, shivering. So I managed to get home and I sort of collapsed into bed and was there for four days with just a raging fever. Then I got the dry cough. So obviously I hadn't, I hadn't been tested. I phoned up to get a test and they said... Um, you're too young to get a test. We're testing older people. And because I'm 41, I was so thrilled to still be described as young. Yeah, right. yeah. So I was like, "Oh well, why, thank you." <laughs> <But> I wanted to you back. Um, but um, yes, I'm pretty sure I had it. But then I know everyone who's had any kind of illness in the world uh, is now convinced they've had coronavirus. So I could be chatting shit about that.
0: Right. All right. Well, let's just let's assume for the sake of the show that you did have it. So. Yeah. Uh, how does it differ from being sick with a flu or something like that?
4: Yeah, so for me, it was like having a really, really bad flu, but I can totally see how, you know, for someone who was older or weaker, it would be really horrendous. It was like the worst flu I've ever had, basically.
0: Okay. And the fever gets up higher than you normally would with a flu? or Yeah, I
4: felt delirious. I felt, it was really weird. I felt absolutely exhausted and delirious. And um, I very rarely get ill, so it was like, it was a very strange... It was it was a very strange sensation um but i'm conscious that by the time your podcast comes out probably half the people listening to it will be in the state i was in so
1: right uh, so well, let's it, hope uh, not. it feels yeah. a bit weird yeah
4: let's hope not half yeah. is an overstatement if right. that's happened then right and is in danger but yeah yeah
0: i mean i had somebody uh, explain it to me somebody who had it um as being uh, like they were convinced that it had to be bacterial because it was that kind of fever like in, in um, other words it's, it 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 was like sudden spikes and you you kind of lose an ability to kind of be clear about where you are what time it is that kind of thing
4: yeah that was for me the most striking thing was the complete mental exhaustion like usually when you're ill like actually nearly died um uh, about 6 years ago in vietnam a food poisoning uh, terrible food poisoning it, thing yeah. that went wrong um but even all through that process although I felt terrible physically I could still think right I, I remember consciously thinking oh I'm, I'm about to die <laughs> you know uh, with this I, what was so odd was I, I felt the fever was so bad that I felt very disordered in my thinking it wasn't uh, it, that was a really weird experience it was it, it was it was odd but obviously lots of people are having different experiences so some people will be listening and going oh well I didn't have those exact symptoms so I haven't got it and do not take my symptoms as typical of coronavirus it's possible I didn't even have it um so yeah I would just urge people to proceed with caution when they're hearing other people's stories and trying to think well do I have it on the basis of that because lots of people are experiencing different symptoms and we won't know until we have the mass testing regime that we really urgently need
0: what do, what do you think of people who I mean there, there are theories out there, and I actually read somebody who's a, I guess it was a former NHS pathologist who's got this theory that, that there are a lot of people who've had it and maybe even predating the, the presumed start date of the, in, the infections in a lot of these countries. Like I, there, there are doctors I've talked to who think that you know they had a lot of patients this, this winter who had bad URIs, but they were flu negative, strep negative maybe a lot of those cases were coronavirus. I mean, are, what's the feeling there over there in London in terms of how many more people probably had it or have it than have been reported?
4: There's just so much speculation. I'm reluctant to kind of go into that. I've heard that as well, but um, the truth is we don't know. You know like right. For example, I think about uh, my niece uh, a month ago uh, has never really been ill and suddenly got this really raging fever, could barely get out of bed and actually had a, a seizure. She had to be taken to, to hospital. And I just read today that seizures are that the coronavirus is causing seizures in some people. So, of course, you think back over it. But the truth is, I don't think we know. And I think um, we won't know for a while. And it's one of the things that's interesting as well about thinking about... Um, I was just listening to a really interesting lecture about. Uh, it was called medical epistemology. So, epistemology, obviously, as you guys know, is the study of uh, how we know things. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's very, very challenging, I think, to us is we. we, we you know, there's just so many things that we don't know about this virus. There's lots of things we don't know about. Much more well-established things. We don't know the mechanism, for example, by which smoking causes lung cancer. Mm-hmm. We know it does, but we don't know how. Um, so. I think there's just so much we don't know and so many grey areas that we're going to find out in the you know, next couple of years that I think loads of the things we think we know now will turn out to be wrong and loads of the things, there'll be loads of things that we later realise will later make sense when we learn key aspects of this. So it's tricky.
1: And you're like, I was really excited to have you on because as someone who's written um, about depression and addiction and mental health and kind of the connections between like neoliberalism and, and depression, um, and, and so much of what you write about is like how to cope with things in the world and how to cope with depression and, and not being alone is so much of that. And you have these really interesting points I remember about how, like, um, you know, we think that we're, we're kind of biologically self-interested, like hardwired to self-interested. But actually, if you want to look at how we're hardwired, there's all these like tribal things where it's like, you know, or, or herd things in the group and, you know, how we're naturally social beings. But so how do we deal with not just like Corona, but how do we deal with the anxiety about Corona when we can't be around other people?
4: This is such an important question. And I think one of the things, this is a horrific catastrophe, I think one of the good things that might come out of it is a more sophisticated understanding of depression and anxiety. So I'll just uh, step back and explain a little bit about why I wanted to care, why I cared about this, because I think it helps to frame the kind of whole conversation we're going to have. So when I started working on my book about depression, Lost Connections, about uh, five years ago, I guess, there were these two kind of mysteries that were really motivating me. So the first mystery is I'm 41 years old and all throughout my life depression and anxiety have increased in the United States and Britain and in fact across the entire Western world and I wanted to understand well, well why right why is this happening to us why is it that with each year that passes more and more of us are finding it harder and harder to get through the day and I wanted to understand it because of a more a personal reason which is that when I was a teenager I remember going to my doctor and explaining that I had this feeling like Pain was leaking out of me, right? I couldn't control it. I felt quite ashamed of it. I didn't understand what was happening. And my doctor told me a story that loads of your listeners will have been told by their doctors, which I now realize was well-intentioned, but really oversimplified. My doctor said, well, we know why people feel like this. Um, Some people just have something wrong with their brain. They just have a chemical imbalance in their brain. And all we need to do is give you some drugs and you're going to be fine. So they gave me an antidepressant named Paxil. And I felt a little bit better. And then the feelings of pain came back, so they gave me a higher dose. Again, I felt a bit better. Again, the pain came back, and I was in this cycle of taking higher and higher doses until for 13 years, I was taking the maximum possible dose you're allowed to take, at the end of which I still felt like shit. And I was like, well, what's going on here, right? And at some level, because as you know, Katie, we've known each other a long time. um, At some level, level there was a political awareness. I was like, well, if it was just a problem in our brains, why would it be going up so much, right? Why would it be so much worse for poor people than for rich people? Although there are a lot, plenty of rich people who get depressed as well, of course. There were things that didn't seem right to me. So for the book, I ended up going on this big journey all over the world. I traveled over 30,000 miles. I wanted to meet the leading experts in the world about what causes depression and anxiety and what solves them, and just people with really different perspectives, from an Amish village in Indiana, because the Amish have very low levels of depression, to um, a lab in Baltimore where they were giving people psychedelics to see if that helped, to, to uh, a city in Brazil that banned advertising to see if that improved people's mental health. And I learned a huge amount, but I think this is the most important thing going forward in terms of how we think about this in terms of coronavirus, right? I learned that there's, there's scientific evidence for nine different causes of depression and anxiety. Two of them are indeed in our biology, right? There are real biological causes. We can talk about them if you want. But most of the factors for which there's scientific evidence that cause depression and anxiety are not in our biology. They're factors in the way we live, right? And once you understand them, that opens up a very different set of solutions. And I think coronavirus helps us to understand lots of things about this. Firstly. Everyone can see anxiety and depression have massively increased in the last two, three weeks, right? And everyone knows it's not that suddenly, spontaneously, the chemistry in our brains all just magically changed at the same time, right? Something happened in the environment and that radically changed how we feel. Now, that's in fact been going on for a very, very long time. So... There are lots of changes in our environment, some of which are being supercharged by coronavirus um, that have been happening and causing depression for a long time. Can I give you a specific example? Because I think it helps. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you a really obvious example. Financial insecurity, right? There is overwhelming scientific evidence. Financial insecurity causes depression and anxiety. I think if you'd asked any of our grandmothers, gee, grandma, do you think if you're really financially insecure, you're more likely to feel like shit? my grandmother would have you know, clipped me around the ear and asked why I was wasting her time asking such dumb questions, yeah, right? Course, yeah. uh, but, but, but this has been, you can, and it comes to the neoliberalism you raised in your question, Katie. You can see, so one, this is only one of the things that's happened, I wanna stress, it's not many other things. But one of the things that's happened is you've had this unleashed neoliberalism all throughout our lifetimes. There's been a massive increase in inequality, which itself causes depression, and a massive increase in financial insecurity, which at the bottom and the middle and the bottom, which causes depression and anxiety. And what people have been told is they go to their doctor and they're taught, oh, it's just a problem in your brain. Now you can see how that depoliticizes a lot of the pain that's caused by neoliberalism. And crucially, it cuts us off from finding the most meaningful solutions. So I've been really frustrated watching on the news the last couple of weeks, all these mental health charities, many of whom I know, all of whom do lots of good and admirable work, but they go on and they're asked by the news anchor what should should be done about the depression and anxiety, and they say, well, people should meditate and turn off the news, right? Now, I'm in favour of meditation. I'm in favour of titrating your access to the news, but the single first and biggest thing they should be saying is, If we're going to end, if we're going to do everything we can to stop a massive epidemic of anxiety and depression, we need to deal with the financial insecurity people are feeling. But again, I think what you see is the neoliberalism of of the mental health model we have at the moment. It's always about transferring responsibility away from the environment, down towards individual actions, right? And there are individual actions that are worth taking, and I talk about them a lot in my book but we've got to deal with this at an environmental level. And it's not pie in the sky. The United States could be so ambitious as to aim for the high standards of El Salvador, one of the poorest countries in the Americas, where the government has canceled everyone's rent and everyone's utility bills until this is over, right? Is anyone listening to this who would not feel less anxiety if they knew that they didn't have to worry about their rent, their mortgage, or their utility bills until this was over? Of course not. But we've got to. the key thing is we've got to stop presenting depression and anxiety as malfunctions and start presenting them as signals of underlying needs that people have that are not being met. Do you see what I mean? I do.
0: I I might want to push back on some of this though, because I'm not afraid to admit I I was clinically depressed myself as a young person. I was diagnosed that way. I took some of the same drugs you took. Um, When I first went overseas, as a young person uh, and I took a year uh, abroad in in the Soviet Union. Uh, One of the things, one of the reasons I was determined to come back is because I had been severely depressed in the United States and when I came to the Soviet Union, which was in a state of total financial collapse, um, the people had nothing. Uh, they had no prospects for, a, a, you know, personal achievement in their future, but they were happier than we were. And I, I, I was very struck by that as a young person that here's a place where people don't have money. They don't have stuff um, and they, they don't have great entertainment. They don't, they have terrible television, but what they do have, and I, and I was aware of this was they spent more time with each other. They prioritized spending time with their families. They valued the things that they had more than we did. They had, they were less worried about things like, "Am I wearing something that's cool?" Than because nobody had anything that was cool, right? Like that was part of the whole. So I, I think you're right. It's it's obvious that that um, you know there are external factors that we're not addressing when we're talking about people who are depressed. But I think what happens when you and you obviously you saw this and it's in your book. But people learn to to say, well, I, I can only control the things that I can control, and the thing of the things that I can control. Here are some things that are going to make me less less depressed, including spending more time with my family. You know, ter- you know, avoiding things that are going to make me anxious, like advertising. I mean, I, I, isn't that also a thing too?
4: I mean, I, I, don't I think know. you're totally right, Matt, and this is really important. And I, interestingly, I use the example of Russia in in the book for exactly that reason. So, um one of the things I learned from all the experts I spoke to is everyone knows they have natural physical needs, right? Mm. You need food, you need shelter, you need clean water. If I took them away from you, you'd be in real trouble real fast. But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel that people see you and value you if we've got a future that makes sense, there's a whole range of psychological needs that people have. And this culture we've built is good at lots of things. I'm glad to be alive today, but we've been getting less and less good at meeting people's underlying psychological needs. And as you were talking, I was thinking about, so you can, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Financial insecurity makes people depressed, but there are things that can protect and buffer against financial insecurity in the culture. So, as you were talking, I was thinking about an amazing academic I interviewed in Berkeley named Dr. Brett Ford, who did this really interesting research. It's really actually helped me to think about the answer to your question, Katie, which is what do we do now? Which is so Dr. Ford was doing this part of loads of teams all over the world. She wasn't doing it alone. They did this interesting research. They wanted to figure out if you decided you were going to spend, let's say, two hours a day deliberately trying to make yourself happier right. would you actually become happier right and they did this research in four countries in the united states in russia in taiwan and in japan and what they found at first seems really weird in the united states if you try to make yourself consciously happier you don't become happier in the moment. <laughs> In the other countries if you try to make yourself happier you do become happier and they were like what how can that be what's going on so they studied it more and what they discovered was and of course there were exceptions on both sides but in general in the united states if you tried to make yourself happier what you did is you did something for yourself right
1: radical self-care
4: exactly you treat yourself you buy something nice you and and i could really see this playing out in my own life when i learned about it you work harder to buy something or you have some shiny external achievement of some kind So we have an instinctively individualistic conception of happiness, right? In the other countries, in the main, when you tried to make yourself happier, you did something for someone else, your friends, your family, your community. So they have an instinctively collective vision of happiness. And it turns out, you know, just individualism just doesn't work very well. We're not that species, right? A species of individualists would have died out on the savannas of Africa because we wouldn't have been able to band together and survive. So and i think you're totally right matt so if you think about and this is one thing i've been thinking about a lot in the last couple of weeks so one of the things you were seeing in russia is they had a lot of financial insecurity but they had a set they had a better story about what happiness is than we do and they had a better actually in some ways a healthier set of values than we do i've been thinking about this a lot obviously because of the reaction to corona so you know for to, you know, everyone knows that junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick, right? As you can see from my chins, I, um. I'm not immune mean, to that. I, I'm, I'm literally in physical withdrawal from KFC as we speak. But actually, <laughs> I, 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 got, I got a message from an old friend of mine who I hadn't seen in like 20 years. Where we, um, uh, she said, I don't know if you remember this, but when we were like 16, uh, we watched some apocalyptic movie and we talked about, well, what's the point in the collapse of civilization? Where you would kill yourself, and you, she said to me, you said it's when they shut all the KFCs. And she's like, just so you know, that has actually happened, right? <laughs> but, no. So everyone knows junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick, right? But there's equally strong evidence that a kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick. For thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about money and status and showing off, you're going to feel like shit, right? That's not an exact quote from Confucius, but that is basically what he said. But, but weirdly, nobody had scientifically investigated this until an incredible man I interviewed, who you guys should totally have on the podcast, Professor Tim Kasser, who's at Knox College in Illinois. And Professor Kasser showed two really important things. Firstly, the more you think life is about money and status and showing off and Instagram followers and all of that stuff, the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious, because it's training you to look for happiness in all the wrong places and secondly he found that as a society as a culture all through our lifetimes the three of us our culture has become much more driven by these values to the point where you can end up with a president who in the middle of a uh, global pandemic is bragging about his ratings being better than the bachelors right it's a perfect symbol of that sickness but one of the things we think about a lot in the last few weeks is and other people have obviously made this point as well well here we are we're in this crisis and it turns out, who are the key people classed as key workers? Who are the people who are keeping all three of us alive and everyone listening to this alive, right? It's not the billionaires. It's not the Wall Street bankers. It's not the Instagram influencers. Who is it? It's people like my grandmother. My grandmother was a cleaner. It's, you know, um, shelf stackers. It's um, nurses. It's uh, garbage collectors. You know, actually, one of the things I think this can help us to do is to see how badly awry our values had gone in the lead up to this crisis that we valued the people who contribute nothing to the society in fact take from it i'm not saying every instagram influencer is like that but billionaires i'm thinking of and we and we devalued and humiliated and treated like shit the very people we depend on to stay alive and if one of the things we can do in this crisis is to see oh you know we really screwed that one up and, and go forward with a healthier set of values like the ones you saw in Russia in the, in the 90s, Matt. I think you're, that would be a really healthy, um, healthy transformation that could happen in us.
0: Isn't the consumer reflex in general designed to kind of create an unhappy feeling in people and then offer them a temporary fix to get past it right so you 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 show advertising on television that shows a bunch of people looking beautiful and wearing beautiful clothes that creates in you the, the, this feeling i'm inferior i don't look great um and so i need to go out and buy something that's gonna cure, cure that little temporary de- feeling of depression doesn't it, doesn't the news media also do that to you, though? Like, it, it, it makes you feel like you're uninformed, that, that you're not knowing enough about what's going on around you. So it, says, it offers you this little jolt of adrenaline when you read something in the news that makes you feel a little bit better about being in the know. But actually, ultimately, cumulatively, it's making you feel worse and worse and worse all the time. I mean, what, what are some of the consumer activities that we engage in that make us feel worse?
4: You know, there's this really interesting little experiment Uh, It was done in the late 70s. It's a really simple experiment. You get a bunch of five-year-old kids and you split them into two groups. And the first group is shown an advertisement for whatever the equivalent of Dora the Explorer was in 1978 or whatever it was. I don't know what that is. A, A famous toy. And the second group is shown no advertisement. And then all the kids are given a choice. They're told, okay, kids, you've got a choice now. You can either play with a really nice boy who doesn't have the toy that was in the advertisement or you can play with a nasty boy who's got the toy. Right? Mm. So it's a choice. Do you want a hu- human connection of fun or do you want an inanimate lump of plastic? And the kids who'd seen the advertisement overwhelmingly chose the nasty boy with the toy mm. and the kids who've not seen the advertisement overwhelmingly chose the nice boy who didn't have the toy. That's one advertisement, right? Uh, We've all, everyone watching this has heard more than one advertisement, the equivalent of more than one advertisement today, right? So one of the things, I think that experiment's really helpful because what it shows us, it's not so much the consumer behavior itself, it's what the consumer behavior diverts you from, Mm -hmm. right? So we all know at some level, none of us are going to lie on our deathbed and think about all the shoes we bought, right? We're going to think about moments of love and meaning and connection in our lives. But as Professor Kassler put it to me, he's done all this amazing research, we live in a machine that is designed to get us to neglect what is important about life and he did a really simple experiment and i really recommend people do this in their little um what's that fucking app house party people do this right while we're in isolation it's a really simple experiment so professor kasser got a, uh, a group of people that it was with a guy called uh, nathan dungan he's a wonderful person in minneapolis and they got um nathan is a financial advisor And uh, he was called in by a school, this was kind of origin of it. And the school had a problem because it was a kind of middle-class school. It wasn't super rich, it wasn't poor. Their students were becoming obsessed with getting things like the latest iPhone or the latest Nike sneakers or whatever. And it was, they were really freaking out if they couldn't get them. And the school's like, the parents couldn't afford them. So the school was like, will you come in and explain budgeting to our kids? So Nathan comes in and he explains budgeting and quite quickly realises these kids don't give a shit about budgeting. Whatever's going on, it's not about, you know, it, it, that's not going to solve it, right? So that's when he teamed up with Professor Kasser. They did this experiment. And they got kids and their parents to meet in groups um, once every couple of weeks for several months. And the first, t- first group, the time they did it, it was like a kind of Alcoholics Anonymous for consumerism, right? First time they did it, they said, okay, I well, want you to drop just the list of everything you've got to have. They didn't define what that meant, right? And of course, everyone first says, you know, you need a home, you need a car, whatever. But quite quickly, people started to name things that people really have not got to have, right? Like Nike sneakers, the parents would name brands they didn't need. And they would say to them, well, tell me, how would you feel differently if you've got this thing? and interestingly most people said well people would envy me or i would be accepted by the group it was very rare that they talked about an inherent quality in the product itself it wasn't like well i want these nike sneakers because i want to be a professional basketball player and i want to be able to jump higher that never came up right or almost never and once people were forced to think we don't really have these conversations right they were forced to think about oh why have I been made to feel I'll be accepted by the group if I get this lump of plastic, right? Just getting people to say it out loud changed how they thought. But then they did the second phase of the group, which was the most important. But they said to these kids and their parents, well, what are moments in your life you have actually found meaning and happiness? And people named different things, playing music, running on the beach, whatever it was. And they said, well, okay, well, let's just meet. And how could you build more of your life Around pursuing these meaningful values and moments, and less around these junk values that are like junk food. And, and um, as they met over the time, it was measured, their values markedly shifted. Just having these conversations led to a marked shift in people's values away from these factors that cause depression and anxiety. So I would say to people who were in shutdown, Talk to your friends about what are moments in your life that have been meaningful? How, when we get out of this, can you build more of your life around pursuing those meaningful things and less around this bullshit? Now, some of that will require social changes to free people up to make the changes they want to make. I can talk about what happened in Canada when they introduced a universal basic income, if you want. I think it's very relevant to what's happening now. But I think, again, this is about, and this is really what, obviously, my book Lost Connections is about. When you understand depression differently, when you understand it's many complex components, solutions that you otherwise couldn't see begin to become clear. But first of all, you have to understand what the problem is, that it has these nine causes uh, that we know about so far, there'll be others we don't know about, and that we need to build our solutions around these these causes. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: M- I, my question, though, is, is, I mean, related. I think one of the things that, Matt, you brought up is how, um, despite... Uh, you know the financial upheaval that you were experiencing in the Soviet Union. There was a lot of connection, right? Like there's less individualism there. To, I right. mean, generalizing, it's a big generalization, but obviously, you know, like, and and Johan, you talked about how how helping others can be so therapeutic, and it seems to some people counterintuitive, but it makes a lot of sense. Like when you're when you're helping others, you're kind of outside of yourself. You're also like socially engaged. You're not wallowing in your own stuff. I never understand when people are like, oh, are you feeling depressed? Are you feeling down? Do you take some me time, do some radical self care, take a bath, listen. It's like, no, I actually want to be, I mean, there's some of it's like, I want to be distracted from whatever I'm upset about, but also I do want to put things in perspective, get outside of my head and be connected to other people um so how do we do this and, and johan in lost connections you gave this really moving uh example a story about a woman who is going to be evicted from her home right yeah um,
4: should i tell you? Yeah. But, but, uh, yeah yeah you're so then, you're so right katie yeah yeah
1: so and, and and you can you can tell that story but basically it requires like intervention and connection and and how do we do this now that we're cut off from each other like how much do we have to what's interesting is usually like you would be saying, and I would agree with you like, oh, we have to stop doing Instagram. We have to stop doing all these things that are so online. But right now we kind of have to do things online precisely because we can't be out and about with other people. And if you're single, I mean, and if, I mean, I'm here where I am with my parents and a family friend and three dogs. And so, but if I were (laughs) alone, I mean, I don't know how I would deal with it. So how can we in this Corona era take advantage of the stuff that, the digital stuff that often takes us away from human connection.
4: Yeah, that's such when a When that's important.
1: required because we can't be physically around other people as much.
4: That's so important. So I just if it's okay I'll just tell the story about Berlin because uh, I've been thinking about it a lot as well in relation to this. Um, and then I'll answer the second bit of that that, that so I, obviously as you can tell from just the little bit we talked about up to now I was taught a huge amount for my book by uh, scientists and experts. But actually I think the people who taught me the most in all the research I did all over the world were not scientists and experts, they were a different group of people. So as you mentioned, in the summer of 2011, on a big anonymous housing project in Berlin, a woman called Nuria Cengiz climbed out of her wheelchair and she put a sign in her window. Uh, And the sign said something like, I got a notice saying I'm gonna be evicted from my home next Thursday. So on Wednesday night, I'm gonna kill myself. Now, this housing project is a place called Cotty. Uh, for people who know Berlin, it's in Kreuzberg. Um, and it was an area that had been very rapidly gentrifying. And rents were going up. I mean, they were going up across Berlin, but they were going up particularly in Cotty in and in Kreuzberg. And loads of people were being evicted. And it was actually it always been a very poor area. It was in the shadow of the wall. And for over 50 years, only three kinds of people had really lived in Cotty. There were recent Muslim immigrants, like this woman, Nuria. There were... Punk squatters and there were gay men. And as you can imagine, these three groups didn't get along, but no one really knew anyone. And, you know, it was just a very isolated, exactly, a very isolated place. But people saw the sign in Nuria's window and they were like, oh shit. So they started knocking on her door. They were like, hey, do you need any help? And Nuria said, fuck you. I don't want any help. I'm going to kill myself. People started talking outside her apartment. And, you know, a lot of people in Coty were being evicted. So they empathized with her. And one of them one day had an idea. There's a big thoroughfare that goes through the center of this housing project. Uh, And one of them had this idea. They said, you know, if we just block the road for a day and we have a protest, um, the media will probably come. They'll probably let Nuria stay in her apartment. There there might even be a bit of pressure to stop our rents going up so much. So Saturday came, they blocked the road. nuria was like well i'm gonna kill myself i might as well let them push me into the middle of the street so they wheel nuria out she does a load of interviews there's a bit of a media buzz in berlin that day Uh, and then it gets to the end of the day and the police say okay everyone you've had your fun go home and the people there said well hang on you haven't told nuria she gets to stay and actually we want a rent freeze for our entire block so when um when we when we get a rent freeze, then we'll take this barricade down. But of course, they knew the minute they the minute they they left, the police would just tear it down, and that would be the end of it. So one of my favourite people in Cotty, a woman called Tanya Gartner, who's a she's one of the punk squatters. Tanya wears tiny little mini skirts, even in Berlin winters. She's hardcore. Um, Tanya had an idea in her apartment. She had a klaxon, you know those things that make super loud noises at football matches, soccer matches. So she went and got it. She came down, she said, okay, everyone, here's what we're going to do. We're going to drop a timetable to man this barricade 24 hours a day. We're going to man it until they've given in and they've agreed to a rent freeze and they've agreed that Nuria can stay. Um, So sign up, we're going to just sign up to man this barricade. So everyone starts putting their name down very unlikely people start being paired with each other people who would never have met so tanya who uh, in a tiny little miniskirt got paired with nuria who's a very religious muslim in a full hijab and the first few nights they were together i think they had the thursday night shift if i remember right the first few nights they're together tanya and nuria are we have got nothing to talk about this is awful. This is so awkward. They started talking. They discovered, in fact, they had something incredibly powerful in common. Um, Nuria started to talk about how she had come to Berlin when she was she was uh, 16. and She had two babies. She came to Berlin to earn enough money to send back home to her husband so he could come and join her. And after she had been there for a year. Where from Turkey?
1: A half, was it Turkey yeah, that she was? Yeah, in wearing?
4: Turkey. Yeah, she was Turkish. Yeah. Um, and so after she'd been there for a year and a half, she'd saved up nearly enough money. She got word from home that her husband had died. Sitting there in the cold in Cotty with Tanya, she told her something she'd never told anyone in Germany before. She'd always told people that her, her husband had died of a heart attack. In fact, he died of tuberculosis, which was seen as a really shameful disease of poverty. That's when Tanya told Nuria something she never talked about. She had first come to Berlin when she, so to Cotty, when she was even younger, when she was fifteen, she got thrown out by her middle-class family because they hated that she loved punk. Uh, she found her way to a squat, and actually, quite quickly, she got pregnant. Tanya and Nuria realized that they had, they had. They thought they were so different. They were incredibly similar. They had both been children with children of their own in this place they didn't understand. These kind of connections were happening all over Cotty. Directly opposite this housing project, there's a gay club called Zudblock, uh, run by a group of people who I absolutely love. They're quite hardcore to give you a sense of what they're like. The previous place they ran was called Cafe Anal. Um, which is a pun in German, but nonetheless, I always think you wouldn't want to get a sandwich from Cafe uh, yeah. But yeah. But, um, but, but and when they'd opened their club, it, it was about, uh, about a year before these protests began. You know, there's a lot of very religious Muslims in this neighbourhood. Some people have been really pissed off. Their windows have been smashed. Um, when the protests began... Um, uh, Zudblock, this gay club, donated all their furniture to the protests, and after it going on for a few months, they said, "You know you guys should have your meetings in our club we'll give you free drinks, we'll give you free food and even the like lefties at Cotty were like, "Look we 're not going to get these very these women in hijabs, these very religious people, to come and have meetings underneath posters for fisting that right it's not going to happen. It did happen as one of them, Neriman Tanker said to me we all realised we had to take these small steps to get to understand each other, right? After the protest had been going on for a year, a full year, one day, and they'd built, (laughs) in the middle of the road, they'd built, a lot of them are construction workers, they'd built a permanent structure in the middle of the road, right, with a roof, it's really nice. Um, One day a guy turned up at the protest named Tung Kai. Um, He was in his early 50s and he'd clearly been living homeless. And when you meet Tung Kai, it's clear that he's got some kind of cognitive difficulties. But he had an amazing energy about him. He started helping out. And quite quickly, everyone loved him. And they said, you know, we don't want you to be homeless. You should come and live in this thing we've built. It was quite nice. So Tonkai moved in and he became a much loved part of the protest movement. And about nine months later, um, one day the police came. They would come every now and then. They were inspecting. And Tung Kai doesn't like it when people argue. And he thought the police were arguing. So he went to try to hug one of the police officers. But they thought he was attacking them. So they arrested him. That's when it was discovered that Tung Kai had been shut away, literally in a padded cell a lot of the time, for 20 years. He'd escaped one day. He'd been on the streets for a few months and he'd made his way to Cotty. So they took him back to the psychiatric hospital right the other side of Berlin in um, Charlottenburg, I think. And at this point, the entire Cotti movement turned into a free Tunkai movement, right? They descend on this psychiatric hospital. and the, I remember these psychiatrists being like, what the fuck is this? They've got this person they've had shut away for 20 years who no one came to see. And suddenly they've got these women in hijabs, these very camp gay men and these punks demanding his release. But I remember one of the, one of the protesters, Uli Hartman, one of the people from Cotti, said to them, yeah, but the thing is, you don't love him he doesn't belong with you we love him he belongs with us and i remember thinking actually how many of us if someone carried us away would have hundreds of people descending demanding our release right uh, many things happened at cottie they they got Tung Kai back he lives there still uh, they got a rent freeze for their entire housing project they then launched a referendum initiative to keep rents down across the city it got the largest number of written signatures in the history of germany they now have rent-freeze in the entire city of Berlin. Um,
1: and, Nuria and did mem- not kill herself.
4: Nuria, the, the last time I saw Nuria, I remember her saying to me, you know, I'm really glad I got to stay in my neighborhood. That's great. I gained so much more than that. I was surrounded by these incredible people all along, and I never knew. And I remember it relates to what you were saying about Russia, Matt. I remember one of the other women, N- Nerman Tanker, who's a Turkish-German woman, saying to me, you know, when I grew up in Turkey, I grew up in a village and we called our whole village home and then I came to live in the Western world and I learned that what we're meant to call home is just our four walls and if you're lucky your family and she said our sense of home in this culture is not big enough to meet our need to belong right there's a, a Bosnian writer Alexander Heyman brilliant Bosnian writer who said home is where people notice when you're not there by that standard before this crisis, lots of us were homeless. 40% of Americans agreed with the statement, nobody knows me well. Loneliness has been rising and rising throughout our lifetimes to extraordinary levels. A lot of people were already effectively in a kind of quarantine, right? So, And it was so clear to me in Cottey, those people, In the main, and there would have been some exceptions, but in the main, those people, think about how unhappy they were. Nuria was about to kill herself. Tonkai was shut away in a padded cell. Loads of them were depressed and anxious. They didn't, in the main, need to be drugged. They needed to be connected. They needed to be seen and valued and to have a sense of meaning and purpose. And so I think the, the first thing we should say about relating that to this period is let's just acknowledge, first of all, it's going to be hard. Human beings need face-to-face contact, right? What we're doing now is good, but it does not compensate for that. And just be honest, you've got needs, and it's going to be really hard to get those needs met in the circumstances we're in. We have to do it, but it's essential because the alternative is mass death from a plague, which is much worse than this. But So firstly, acknowledge it's hard. But secondly, I would say something I can take from Cotty, there's loads of things I take from Cotti, but something for this experience in particular, which is, so I interviewed the, the, the kind of leading expert in the world on loneliness, a guy called John Cassioppo, who's a professor in Chicago. And I remember he was saying to me a really interesting thing about loneliness, a kind of breakthrough he made, which is when he was first studying loneliness, he thought, essentially, if you say to people, are you lonely? Everyone knows what you mean. But it actually turned out to be quite hard to scientifically define loneliness because um, the initial instinct is to think, well, it means being alone, right? But actually what he discovered is the sensation of feeling lonely does not correlate very strongly with how many people you see every day and um, it does correlate with something else so he said loneliness is not the physical absence of other people it's whether you share meaning with those people so we can all think about examples where we uh, so imagine you go to a imagine you've never been to new york and you go to times square for the first time um You're surrounded by people, but you feel lonely because you don't have any meaning with these people. You don't know them, they don't know you, they don't care about you. Or at the other end, imagine we've all been in the situation where you're in a relationship that's breaking down and the person is still physically there, but you feel really lonely because the meaning between you is broken down. So building meaning, he said, is the best solution to loneliness and there's lots of ways we can build meaning right now what can we do to honor the people who are keeping us alive we can fight for a much higher minimum wage right there's all sorts of things that you guys talk about the whole time um, that we can fight for do, do, do you see what i mean about like applying that in
0: yeah no this is great but so, uh, so the, the question that arises though and you, you you talked about this i mean this all fits in with what you're saying at the beginning about how the whole idea of how we define depression in the west is Shifting responsibility onto the person who's depressed and away from the the external factors I mean, I think in your book you talk about how the question shouldn't be what's the matter with you But what matters to you, right? Like that we should get to be able to get to that place the problem is politically people have interests in preventing us from Getting to that solution, right? I mean, I I, I feel like it reminds me of a book I read once about the cult Amshin Rico, how they they sleep deprived all the members so that it would break their will and prevent them from escaping the cult. In the West, it's great if we realize what matters to us and we get to the point where we realize we need more meaning and more connection in, in our lives. But we'd first have to break out of the cycle of needing to work constantly to fulfill our financial uh, problems. And I, and I feel like a lot of people in our, in our society, especially in America, are ground down to the point of inaction by the need to just constantly be working all the time, right? So it's not just. It, I guess our question is: Is it not just a realization that we have to come to, but there's also a political aspect to it too, isn't there? A
4: hundred percent, a hundred percent. There's this is, is and that's why obviously the last third of my book, Lost Connections, is about those political solutions because mm-hmm. I mean some personal ones, but mostly political. There's this concept in the kind of critique of. Um, Self help. There's a great guy called uh, Professor Ronald Purser who writes about this uh, called cruel optimism. Right? You hear a lot of cruel optimism in American culture. Mm-hmm. So, cruel optimism is where you have a really big problem that has big social causes like obesity, depression, anxiety, and you offer people in a very upbeat, friendly way a really simplistic solution. So you say, oh, okay, you're really depressed because, you know, I mean, I think Ronald gives a really good example of a company that uh, stripped out all its workers' healthcare coverage and then gave them mindfulness lessons, right? It's a really good example of how you see that, uh, which is not to say mindfulness can't help some people. Of course it can, but it, you can see the cruelty yeah. of that, right? Um, and and uh, so I think there's a big element of cruel optimism in the way we respond to depression and anxiety at the moment. Um, and you're totally right. The path out requires for most people... Big structural changes. I'm not very cautious of this. My sister is a struggling single mother who works every hour she can. Um, my, you know, my brother is an Uber driver. The idea that I would say to them, hey, the solution to your depression now is you should go to meditation classes. You should fight for a universal basic income. I mean, it would be insulting to them. They can barely get out of bed. They're so exhausted by the demands of this culture. So a big part of what we have to do is change the culture to set people free, to make the changes that would help them. Um, and there's a really good, your instinct is totally right, Matt. There's a good side scientific uh, little test study of it so in canada in the 1970s the canadian government chose a town interestingly they seem to have genuinely chosen it at random which i find interesting itself but they chose a town called dauphin it's in manitoba it's about four hours out of winnipeg for people who know manitoba and um, yeah it's called dauphin and they said to a really large number of people in this town from now on we're going to give you a guaranteed basic income There's nothing you have to do in return for this. Uh, We should give you a check every month. And there's nothing you can do that means we'll take it away unless you go to prison. And they just wanted to see what would happen, right? What would happen to people? Um, And this was studied by an amazing social scientist called Dr. Evelyn Forget. And I really recommend people read her her research because it's so interesting. Anyway, uh, it it wasn't a huge amount of money. It was about $12,000 in today's US dollars, right? So you're not going to be homeless if you have $12,000, but you're not going to be living a high life, right? And... And they wanted to see what would happen. And loads of things happened. Interestingly, almost nobody quit work. In fact, I think literally nobody quit work. There were some people who, when they had children, took more time out before they went back. And there were some people who went back to school and studied. But there was almost nobody who took the check and just did nothing, right? But what was most interesting for purposes of this conversation is there was a really big fall in. All mental health problems in fact mental health problems that were so severe you had to be shut away in a psychiatric hospital felt massively by a level you will find no drug in the world that has that effect right and again this in some ways it seems really fucking obvious right when you explain to people financial insecurity causes depression giving people a baseline of security deals with a lot of that anxiety and depression and by the way even considerably more you know extreme mental health problems fell as well um uh, but i think it's also because it set people free to make the changes they want to make but you're right that is a structural change it's a structural change we can all fight for uh, along with changing the way we work and i talk a lot in the book about how the way we work is making us depressed and other ways happy to talk about But, but you're right in the absence of dealing with these structural problems um it's quite hard to deal with this epidemic because it has risen for structural reasons that's not to say there aren't people who don't have these problems who become depressed there are i talk in the book about how for example surviving um childhood abuse as i did can cause depression and there are psychological methods that about releasing the shame about that that can reduce depression there are, there are things individuals can do you know and i talk about them as well but but i think you're right matt we've got to ha- this is a political fight what we've done is we've depoliticized the pain That a lot of people experience from the way, from profoundly dysfunctional aspects of our societies. We've told them there's something simply wrong with their biology. And it's important to stress this isn't just some wacky view of mine. The leading doctor at the United Nations on World Health Day in 2017 said we need to talk much less about chemical imbalances and much more about power imbalances in the way we live. The World Health Organization, the leading medical body in the world, who we're rightly all looking to for guidance on coronavirus, has been telling us for years, as they put it, the causes of this depression epidemic are largely social and largely require social solutions. So we should be listening to them. We should have been listening to them all along.
1: If you could just summarize in like two minutes, let's say, what people can do in this Era right now with corona are there should we be zooming more should we be having more conversations with people online like how do we build this connection when we're literally not seeing each other
4: so I would say a few things firstly you p- understand that your pain makes sense right a Got malfunction that. in you this is a signal that something's yeah. gone wrong the single best thing we can do is fight as citizens to deal with the underlying causes of this anxiety so pressure your political representatives to do what the Conservative government in Britain has done. As you know from my weird Downton Abbey accent, I am British. I am not a big fan of the British Conservative government for all sorts of reasons I'm sure you can understand, but they have guaranteed 80% of people's wages throughout this crisis, right? The French government has guaranteed no one will become unemployed and no business will go bankrupt as a result of this. Britain and France are not hypothetical imaginary communist constructs right they are real countries the united states can do what britain has done the united states could aim so high as to do as we said before what el salvador has done so i would say the single biggest thing is fight as citizens to deal with those deep underlying causes now there are lots of things we can do as individuals as well one thing i've done that has been really helping me is i just made a list of everyone in my life who I feel really grateful to, lots of whom I haven't spoken to in years, and I've been phoning all of them and just thanking them for what they, and telling them how great they are. You know, I had a teacher when I was 17, a politics teacher. Her name's Jackie Grice, who changed my life, right? Completely changed my life. Uh, she made me so infused for politics. She's an incredible human being. Uh, she was the person who told me to apply to Cambridge University, which would never have occurred to me. You know, I was from a working class family. Um, and I phoned her and I hadn't spoken to her in 10 years and she was so happy to hear from me and I was so happy to hear from her and she's been really upset because her mother's in her home and she can't get to her mother and. You know, so I've got a list she, here literally, you
1: said in her home. I thought you said oh. she's been really upset because her mother's in oh, her no. home. no, <laughs> no, that would
4: yeah, be in a, a home. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. In a home. Yeah. Not, not home. Um, uh, you know, so I've got a big list here of people. I've got like 30 people I'm working my way through. It's a lovely experience. I would say turn to meaning and connection. I would say so the last thing goes right back to Matt's connection with Russia. You know, one of the reasons I was in Moscow was to interview this totally fascinating guy. I don't know if you came across him when you were there, called Dmitry Leontiev. He's a kind of psychology professor. Mm-hmm. He's an amazing Russian psychologist. He said such an interesting thing to me. He said, he was talking about the difference between, I'd like to have a longer conversation with you about this, Max. I'm very interested in what you think about it. But he said, um, he was talking about the difference between how Americans and British people see the world and Russians, right? And he said, go back to the 19th century, look at Tolstoy. He said, we... Americans and British people build our philosophy, he said, around the pursuit of happiness. It's even there in the, obviously, founding documents of the country. He said, when Russians hear that, we just laugh, right? He said, (laughs) you can can pursue happiness all you like. Happiness will come and go. You have very little control over that. He said, what our philosophy is about is about the pursuit of meaning. He said, and if you have a sense of meaning, meaning will carry you through terrible pain. Right As obviously they've had to in Russian history uh, for long, long, most of, its, most, of its, most periods of it. But he said, "If you have a sense of meaning, think about something as simple as going to the dentist. If I went up to either of you now and attacked you with a drill and rammed it into your teeth, in the absence of meaning, that would be a horrific assault. In the context of the dentist, where you know, okay, I'm going through this painful thing, but at the end of it, I'll have less pain, my teeth will be better, we consent to it. You know, we don't like it, but we consent to it. Meaning carries people through pain. So I think one of the most important things we can do, in the run-up to this crisis, we have become societies and cultures with profoundly dysfunctional senses of meaning. That is one of the ways Donald Trump could happen, right? It's a sign that values have gone deeply askew that we can look to people like this and not and there's people on our side as well who I think embody disfun- Not quite as bad as Trump obviously, but embody dysfunctional values We need to think deeply about meaning and build it with the people around us and we're in the lucky position We can still do that and we do have some time to think about this now at least So I would say the single most important thing beyond a political fight, which is itself a source of meaning of course, is Let's look at ways we can build collective meaning together that's terrific. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Johan, thank you so much for coming yes. on. This oh. is great. Um, yeah.
4: And uh, we, we should definitely have you on again because this is I would love that. You could yeah. talk right. about it. And I meant to say at the end, my publishers shoot me if I don't say this. Uh, it, obviously, people are in uh, lockdown now. So if you want things to listen to on the websites for my book, there's loads of interviews with all the people we talked about. So you can hear the audio for free. It's www.thelostconnections.com. And I also wanted to say, um, uh, I really recommend that people read "I Can't Breathe," Matt's book, which I read when it came out, and it's a fucking amazing book and a, a really heartrending. And I've thought about it a lot since I read it, and it really h- helped me to understand so many things. So, if you're also in lockdown, I recommend read "I Can't Breathe" because it's brilliant.
0: Right, and yeah. you, and everybody should uh, should read uh, "Lost Connections." Why yeah. you're depressed and, and and
1: chasing the screen? I
0: hope yeah. So yeah. And, and you don't need to go to the store. That's the the, yes. the, the, the modern technologies. Yes. Yeah. You can just get it, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I know this is fascinating, though. Know, I think, and it's intertwined with a lot of stuff that Katie and I talk about a lot about how the, sort of screwed up values in this country and, and mismatched incentives with politics and everything. And it's really interesting to, to explore it. We don't really talk about it in this country a whole lot. So we'd, we'd love to have you on again
4: sometime. Yeah. Like. Hooray. Thank you. <laughs> oh, <laughs> All thank you both so much. Oh, okay. bye. Uh, okay. bye. Bye
1: that was a great conversation.
4: It
0: was. Yeah. I love
1: Johan. He's great. I wonder if he did have uh, Corona, COVID-19. I wonder if he got it from hanging out with Boris Johnson.
0: Very possible. We should Very have possible. asked that question. Yeah. yeah we well, now have. we'll never know. Yeah. Well, we could know well, later, I guess. I mean,
1: yeah, yeah. Hopefully.
0: Yeah. Um, so yeah. That, that last thing he was talking about is really interesting that the, the difference between finding meaning and finding happiness. Yeah. Yeah, he's got a good point. The the, the Russians obviously have a lot of experience in in contextualizing horror, so maybe that's why they're better at it than we are. Although we'll we'll probably catch up now a little bit during during this crisis, which is uh, depressing. So on that note... uh, On that
1: note, uh, thanks for tuning in to Useful Idiots. Uh, Thanks for listening to us. Uh, You know, As you know, you can find us anywhere you find your podcast. You can watch us on YouTube. Uh, Also, we got some great merch. We got Useful Idiots bags, uh, uh, T-shirts... Uh, we're we're asking for any recommendations on uh, you know cool um, images or, or or mottos. I think what to
0: start a viral phenomenon, if you have an t-shirt, you should yes, exactly. You, you should you should put it on, but nothing t-shirt. else. Run around the block wherever it is that you live and see if somebody takes a picture of you. Yeah, but right stay
1: now. six feet away. Stay six them. feet away, yeah. right?
0: Just serpentine in and out around. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, so uh, that's that's what we want you to do and uh rate and review us yes and, review uh, us, uh, you know what go, go go ahead and listen to pod save america don't even know all right yeah and, maybe and, and fi- finding meaning in our in our shared uh, whateverness yeah we should reach uh, out
1: to them have them on the show
0: <laughs> yeah let's have on them on, the on. Yeah. let's love and embrace them and From not drive railroad spikes through their heads yeah and uh and thanks very much for for tuning in we'll, we'll check you out next week
1: yeah and keep sending us your uh, questions.
0: That's right. Send questions and and film them. And, And film
1: them and use the hashtag Useful Idiots Pod.
0: That's right.